Good morning. Good to see you. And uh, if you and I have not met, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm about to be saying one of the four (laughs) pastors here, and that was uh, Jake Patton, uh, our other pastor who's leading us in worship. Laura Hamby alluded to this in her in her announcement, and uh, you, you may have seen this just from information that's out today, but this is a Sunday that we make some emphasis about adoption and orphan care, and we really, as a church, we don't have many, I guess you'd say, theme Sundays, so this is one of the only ones that we do, but we feel like uh, it's, it's worth doing it. This is a worthy theme, and I'm going to try to unpack that a little bit as we go. So we're taking a break from what we've been studying. If, you, if you're uh, a visitor, haven't been here, what we've been studying in these sermons is the book of Acts. That's the, the fifth book of the New Testament. It comes after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And it explains how Christianity went from being this very local thing to a, to a global thing. But uh, we're going to look at another New Testament book. Very short passage, just two verses. They're there in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. And a few other passages I want to refer to, but we're going to be in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Uh, you probably remember this from a few Januaries ago, January of 2015, when um, two brothers who identified with Al-Qaeda out of Yemen, they, they burst into the offices of Charlie Hebdo, it's a French publication, and they murdered 12 journalists and staff, and they injured 11 others. And, and since that time, France really has been uh, a repeated target of terrorism, and, and they're no strangers to it. You know, after that happened, there was a lot on social media about it, and a lot of people, you know, they imposed the, the French flag over their profile picture. I think I did that myself, but, you know, just trying to identify. And a hashtag that was spread around during that time was pray, uh, hashtag pray for France, or it might have been pray for Paris. And Charlie Hebdo, that's right, pray for Paris. Charlie Hebdo put out something on social media itself. It was just one of their little stick, uh, kind of a, you know, primitive little drawings. And it says this in English. Friends from the whole world, thank you for hashtag pray for Paris. But we don't need more religion, exclamation point. Our faith goes to music, kisses, life. Champagne and joy, hashtag Paris is about life. It was interesting to see that because, you know, if, if you are a religious person or if you're, if you're surrounded by religious people, you think, of, of course we would say we're praying for you. Of course that would be understood as a, as a welcome thing. And you actually had the victims saying, please don't do that. Like re- religion drove what happened. We don't want more religion. Paris is about life. Uh, understandable that that's how they would respond. Think about in our own country, and it's not really a news item anymore, but I've I've seen this one circulated quite a bit, is the the emergence and the rise of a demographic group that's been labeled the nuns. Now, that's not like the ones in convents, uh, N-U-N-S. This is N-O-N-E-S. It's the the people with no religious affiliation. Uh, You've probably seen pieces like this. Pew Research Center, this came out a couple of falls ago. Religious nuns are not only growing, they're becoming more secular. Religious nuns are not only growing as a share of the U.S. population, but they are becoming more secular over time by a variety of measures, a fact that is 
also is helping to make the U.S. public overall somewhat less religious, according to surveys done as part of our religious landscape uh, study. If I, and here's one figure, just when the question, uh, poll question, do you believe in God or universal spirit? So not even really identifying with a known religious entity, but just saying you kind of believe in some sort of organizing great God figure. Do you believe in God or universal spirit? Uh, as of 2014, it was up to 33% said no. And the number continues to go up. Uh, I, I wanted to throw those out to you because I think overall, even though there's still worldwide and, and even in the West, there, there's a, I might say, a an openness to spirituality. The word religion is going from negative to more negative in its connotation. And it's interesting that you would think in a book like the Bible, (laughs) the Holy Bible, that would be a book that has the word religion in it a lot. And really, the word religion hardly appears. It does a few times. But the passage that we're about to look at is one where the term really is the biggest critical mass, and it's only like three times, but it's the biggest critical mass of the word religion or religious in the whole New Testament. And and I want us to hear it. And and part of what I want us to think about this morning is when the critiques of religion come, now that includes Christianity, but the critique is larger than Christianity. When those critiques come, are we going to be defensive or are we going to hear them? And learn what we need to learn. Because interestingly, in some ways, the most severe critiques are not from the outside. The most severe critiques are from the Scripture themselves. And this is one of them. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we need your help to understand what to do with these words. We know there's lots of religion and there's lots of religious people. We know there's lots of religiosity. And there's some things that we look at done in the name of religion and we're thankful for them. We're thankful for compassion. But there's so much that's done that we want to distance ourselves from. So it's hard for us to know how to think about even this term that's part of our world and part of our experience. Thank you for these words. Please open our hearts, open our ears to what you're saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In the early 1950s, there was an issue in my home state of Mississippi before the, the state legislature, and it was about the legalization of whiskey and, uh, of course, Mississippi being Miss- Mississippi, you know, kind of, no one ever really skipped a beat drinking whiskey, but uh, it was just the legality of it was really the issue. The joke is that people were staggering to the polls to vote dry, you know, up to, to the 50s. 
but uh, there, was a, there was a Mississippi State legislator, uh, legislator, a guy in the House of Representatives by the name of, I've got to get this right, Noah Sweat, and he went by the uh, nickname Soggy. So Soggy Sweat stood up to speak to this and, because the question on the table was, do you approve or disapprove of the legalization of whiskey, uh, sales of whiskey in the state of Mississippi? And this has become an, an infamous speech. It's become known as the If by Whiskey speech. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, but picture this in a uh, thicker accent, yay, verily, even than my own. Question on the table. Do you support the legalization of the sale of whiskey? If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation. Now, this is back when a speech was a speech. And shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together, it puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes. If you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old gentleman's step on a frosty, crispy morning, who has started drinking the whiskey before lunch, apparently. <laughs> if you mean that, this is my favorite part, if you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars which are used to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful aged and infirm to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. End of speech. Incredible. You could almost hear Dixie playing in the background when he was, when he was making that speech. And I, I, I feel something in me sort of welling up that almost wants to, to respond something like that when I've been asked the question, and I have been asked this question in these words, are you religious? Now, now normally it's somebody, you know, a little bit outside of your normal demographic. I think at least around here because this is such a religious place. This is such specifically a churched place a place that has historically identified with Christianity. You know, when Vardry Mackby, uh, he gives land to the city. He, he gives land that's to be earmarked for local churches to the respective um, different denominations or, or, or Christian traditions. So it's built into our history. But when somebody asks me, okay, are you religious? You know, you feel like saying, if by religious you mean uh, exclusion or extremism, or violence, or us versus them, or I'm right, you're wrong, shut up. If that's what you mean by religious, no, I'm not religious. I don't want to be religious. But you know, if by religious you mean the, the Christian aid worker who places herself in harm's way to actually work with, let's say, crippled children, well, that, yeah. In, the, in that sense, I, I do want to be religious, but it's attention. 
What, what do we mean by the term religion? Do we want to be people? Is, or let's put it this way. Is Scripture nudging us toward being people who want to say, I'm religious? And again, to be the Holy Bible, to actually be quite literally the best-selling book in the whole world and maybe the most famous religious book in the world. The term religion hardly shows up at all, but there's a little critical mass of it in this passage. So here's what I want to look at, just just two points. First off, critiques of religion. And then secondly, religion that works. Critiques of religion and then religion that that works. First off, the critiques... And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more teachy here, and I'm probably out of my depth, but I want to think about two kinds of critiques. First off, cultural critiques, and really the cultural critiques come from his, historic critiques or philosophical critiques. So those first, but then the biblical critiques. Uh, there's a book, now it's not an easy book, and I haven't read the whole book actually, but it was a book that came out several years ago by a guy named Merrill Westfall. I don't know if he's still on faculty at Fordham University in New York, but he was a philosophy professor at Fordham in New York City. And he wrote a book called Suspicion and Faith, uh, The Religious Uses of Modern Atheism. And he, he talks about there's really three intellectual figures that, that left us the legacy of how religion is critiqued in our day. He talks about they are Sigmund Freud... Karl Marx, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Now again, we could really get in out of our (laughs) depth pretty quickly. And I'm not here to give a philosophy talk. I'm here to to talk about the Bible. But I I feel like I'd be asleep at the wheel if I didn't bring up some of these things. Let me just zone in on the third one because Nietzsche's, or Nietzsche, his critique is the one that really has not just lingered. It's kind of made its way into the whole water supply. And, And here's what it sounds like is that, all right, when somebody says, you know what, you know what we need in our day? We, we need love. P- people need to be loving. God wants us to love each other. Nietzsche would sort of look back at that person and say, all right, you're saying that everybody needs to love each other. Love is important. We need to love each other. But, but are you motivated by love? Like, are you just telling people they need to love each other because you really think love is preeminent or, or are you trying to control people? Or we need peace. We need peace in our day. We need to, to work for peace and labor for peace and prioritize peace. Nietzsche would look back at you. In fact, there's, there's a chapter in that book by Westfall called Squintingly Yours, Friedrich Nietzsche. It's like he's looking back at people when they make a truth claim. We need peace in our day. He's squinting back at you going, okay, but what's motivating you? Do you really believe in peace or are you just trying to control people? Like, let's prioritize peace so that the world is not volatile. And that my life is not upset. And where Nietzsche wanted people to go is this. All truth claims at the end of the day is someone's desire to control another person. When you say that such and such is absolutely true, it's absolutely true everywhere in the world. It's absolutely true for every person and for all people. All you're trying to do is to to control somebody. All truth claims are power grabs. And Nietzsche would have said the number one culprit of who does this are religions. So we're going to tell you who the real God is. We're going to tell you what the real God said or the real gods say. 
And you've got to take our word for it. And what that's going to be is really, it's not trafficking in truth. This is going to be a way to control you through the mechanism of religion. And it was interesting. I quoted something like this from the pulpit about a month ago. And one of you sent me an article. I can't remember if it was from the the New Yorker. I think it was the New Yorker. And literally, it almost quoted my, my words to you back to me, is that all truth claims are power grabs. Now, I want us to hear that. Like, that's how religion feels to more and more and more people. Like, what we're doing right now to more and more people, not just out there, to more of you, to more of the people in our families and and our neighbors, it feels like you are trying to control me. This has nothing to do with reality. But there's a problem. Now, please hear me. I want, you, I want you to hear, like, we need to hear how we're coming across to people. But I think what, what we might call the, the, the worldly critique of religion, the philosophical critique, it gets you stuck. Because here's the thing. There's an inherent problem in saying all truth claims are power grabs, except for me right now telling you that all truth claims are power, grab, power grabs. That's the one exception. And I'll give, I'll give you an example of this. I couldn't put my hand on the article, but back in the 90s, there was an article in the Chronicle of, High, uh, Chronicle of Higher Education. It was by a woman who was a professor. She was an anthropologist. And she, she writes about the fact that she was committed to like how Nietzsche would understand religion and truth claims. As an academician, as a, as a professor, as somebody very involved in the, in the intellectual guild... She was committed to, don't make your truth out to be absolute truth. Nobody can make absolute claims about truth. But as a woman, she was, she was learning more about human trafficking, which is all over the world, but in particular, she had become very burdened about the trafficking of women in, in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so what she writes about is, you know, on the one hand, I was committed to this there are no truth, all truth claims are suspect, but I'm looking at what's going on in the lives of these women, and it's evil. It's evil. And so when she was part of, I guess what you'd call it, a delegation that communicated with the leaders of one nation in particular, where there was so much of this trafficking going on, uh, sexual trafficking of women, when she interacted with the leaders of that nation, guess what they said to her? You're just trying to control us. Don't come in here with your Western values and impose, impose them on our culture. You call this human trafficking. That's not how we see it. And what she wrote about is the thing that I was trying to, the thing that I was trying to put into my students, it was said back to me. It, it blew up in my face. As one person put it, if, if you're taught to see through everything, every assertion, every dogma. If you see through everything, pretty much there's nothing to see anymore. If everything becomes transparent, there's nothing to look at. And, and here's what I want you to think about. Uh, you, you, will, you will find angrier critiques of religion in the world. There's lots to be had. You'll find angrier ones but you will never find a more severe one or a more substantive one than the one that the Scripture offers. 
Now, you, like, go back to the passage. J- just think about verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religion and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this, this person's religion is worthless. Now, where did James get that? I mean, first, first off, he got it from his Bible. You know, what we would call the Old Testament. When Michelle read that passage from Isaiah 1, it's, it's funny, I kind of had a weird existential <laughs> moment as you were reading that because, I mean, I, you know, I helped put this bulletin together. I've been looking at those words all week. But when you read those, you kind of can't believe that God said that. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is the one who gave to the Israelites these festivals, these feasts, these gatherings at the, the temple. You know, you're supposed to do this. I, as God, am telling you that. And then when they did it, you've got God coming to them through the prophet Isaiah saying, you know what, I'm paraphrasing, I've reached the point where I cannot stand it anymore. I cannot stand your gatherings. I cannot stand your pious gatherings. Why? Because you're committed to that. Let's say you you heard me in the law, you heard me in the prophets say, yes, these things are important. So as you reach over to grab for that and apply that, you reach over all these things that are so important to, to God, and you ignore them. And boy, if James heard that critique in his Bible, he seriously heard it from Jesus. Jesus' harshest words were with whom? Were Jesus' har- I love to bring this up. Were Jesus' harshest words with drunks? Were his harshest words with the sexually uh, loose? Over and over and over, when God became man, his harshest words are with the Pharisees the most religious people in his setting, the law and prophets people, the Bible people. And wow, if you, if you, <laughs> you know, I know there's all kinds of differing levels of familiarity with the Bible or, or Jesus, but if, if you're here this morning and you don't know a lot about Jesus and you kind of picture that he just sort of looks like this mild white man from Illinois with a beard and, and a tunic and, you know, just maybe you've seen a picture of him somewhere, then read, here's my reading assignment for you. The first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23. Read that chapter and it will disabuse you of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Because Matthew 23 is one of the great chew-outs of history. And it's a chew-out. It's Jesus chewing out the Pharisees. Now, I think it's a lover's quarrel. You don't get upset about people you don't care about. You get upset when you care a lot. But he says things like this. You hypocrites... You blind guides, you tithe. He talks about you'll tithe your garden herbs. You've got guys going like, okay, let's take, I've got this much mint. Jesus actually uses that example. I've got this much mint, so let me just shave this off at 10% and, and this will go to God. I'll make sure to tithe this. And Jesus says, you're so detailed and exact and fired up about that, but you neglect what... He, Jesus' words, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's like you will reach over all these other scriptures, you who study these scriptures all the time, you'll reach over all this about who is God. 
And how has God dealt with us? And how should that flavor how we treat, treat one another? You'll reach over all that to make sure that you grab this verse and that you give 10% of your mint plants. Now, here, here's where it's easy for us to kind of just pleased with ourselves to go, well, that's so true. That's so, I can't stand religious people. Always have felt that way. You know, sounds like, I think you're preaching about my uncle. That's my uncle right there. My Bible thumping. It's easy to kind of aim it. And I just, if, you, if you're not here very often, let me just say something I try to say semi-regularly. Let's keep the applications in the room. Let's not lob Molotov cocktails at, you know, the world out there, the religious people out there. Think about the brilliant example that James uses. If anyone thinks, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, you think about, like, we are the kind of people that maybe with our coworkers. Now, I'm thinking here of those who would self-identify as Christian. Like, we're the kind of people that maybe the, the, your colleagues, maybe the office staff know, okay, no, you can't ever do a conference call with him or her on a Sunday morning. They're at church, and they make a big deal of the fact that they can't be on a conference call, or they can't take calls because they're at church. But then they hear us talk the rest of the week. And maybe our coworkers who are not super familiar with the, with the Scripture are still able to say correctly, yeah, I, I don't think uh, some of the other Bible content has sunk in. And what is James saying? Their critique is valid. It is Scripture's critique. And man, we all do it. There's all kinds of different versions of it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on men for a second. You can have a man who, who already likes the thought of, you know, being the head of his home. And so maybe he sort of grabs this verse over here and this verse over here to prop up what are already his preferences. They're not there because of biblical teaching. It's just how he was put together and what serves him well. He'll, he'll grab for those to serve his purposes and reach over everything else that's said about how we treat one another, specifically how you would treat your best friend who hopefully is, for the married man, his spouse. And what is he doing? He's not just using this verse and this verse, his religion, as a way to enforce what were already his preferences. He's now enshrining his preferences. And the prophets and Jesus and James are saying, Bad religion. Religion that's worthy of a severe critique. So do we throw all religion out? Does the passage say, so therefore, don't ever identify with religion? No. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled, and, and catch that he just sort of tacitly acknowledged that religion can be impure and defiled. But by contrast, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, One writer 
has, has come up with this term, and I've said it to you before, the quartet of the vulnerable. And it's this kind of subpopulation that just keeps coming up in the Bible over and over and over. And it is the widow and the orphan, or it might say fatherless, and the poor and the alien or the sojourner. And over and over, it brings them up. I'm not going to read them, but I put just two in your bulletin from the law and the prophets where God specifically identifies them and says, I am the great God and I show no partiality and therefore whom do I identify with? The widow, the orphan, the poor. Where did James, why does James reach for the widow and the orphan? Because everything he came from said, that is the priority. The law, the prophets, Jesus himself. Why are they the priority? Why does the Bible keep pushing the quartet of the vulnerable in our face? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but let's put it this way. The vulnerable are a mirror. And we could even say the vulnerable are a gauge. Think about this. One of the most famous American hymns is Rock of Ages. Not the Def Leppard one, the older one. And this, this famous stanza says, and this is a sinner talking to God, says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now get this. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. In other words, it's a sinner not coming as a proud, sharp person, but it's, it's a man or a woman coming to God saying, unless you do something, Lord, unless you do something, I will remain as I showed up. How did I show up? Helpless. Naked. Foul. Unless you do something. Now, whether or not we use that kind of terminology... If that doesn't get deep down in our bones about, wow, if God had not burst into my life, what, what would my plight be? I mean, we're thinking about adoption and orphan care this morning. Think, think about this. Do, and this may absolutely jar your teeth when I say this, but I just feel like I've got to get this across. Does the Bible depict all human beings as being God's children? The Bible depicts all human beings as being God's creation, God's image bearers, and our neighbors, that we are one another's neighbors. But it says, to become his child, he must adopt you. That's the only kind of person you would adopt. You wouldn't adopt your own children. You adopt someone who's not naturally your child to become your child. Anyone in this room who's able to say, on the basis of what God has revealed... God had mercy on me and made me his child. It's not because we showed up and we were naturally his children and naturally lovable. The Bible says the opposite. Jesus says the opposite. But he makes some people his child by what? By unnaturally reaching for them. Unnaturally reaching for the unattractive and the unlovable to make them attractive to love them and transform them and draw them into a relationship of love with him. 
if that gets in your bones, then you see the child with no mom or dad in a different, with different eyes. If not, then what that child is going to look like to you is, best case scenario, here's an opportunity for me to feel sorry for them, go do some volunteer work, get photographed doing it, and post it to show that, I, um, that I'm a good person. Working downtown stretches, it stretches man, it stretches Jake. And we, we get pop-ins. He gets more of them because his office is here. Man, when, when, when a homeless person comes by and, and they're soliciting for a handout, I, I, I just know all too well it is much easier to talk at them than to see this person as a reflection of my own condition. That the reason that I should care about you is not that I can prove that I'm a good man. And this is how my parents brought me up. But to extend mercy to the poor, the orphan, the widow, is only to reflect how God has dealt with me through His Son. Do you feel overwhelmed? I mean, if, if, if you're downtown and you see vagrants, I mean, they're, they're, if we just looked out the window, don't, please don't look out the window. But uh, if, uh, you know, if we just watch, there'd be men walking along there, some of them homeless, many of them homeless. But just around the world, there's so many poor. There's so many fatherless. There's so many widows. There's so many widows in Greenville. Do you feel overwhelmed? don't know where to start. Let me end with this. Uh, if you are a writer or would like to be a writer, let me recommend a book to you if you haven't read this book. It's called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Really interesting. It's got a few wordy dirties in it, but you can get through it. And uh, do people still say wordy dirty? Anyway. But where the title of her book came from, she starts the book by recounting when she was on this family trip and her brother had to bring all this homework because he had this big writing assignment. He's like in grade school and he's supposed to do this report on birds and he had waited too long like we all do. And, and you know, it's due right on the other side of vacation. He's panicking. And, and so when they're all trying to have fun, there's this one point where he's just sitting there. He's got paper spread out and you can just see he's just starting to shut down from being overwhelmed. And this is really sweet. His dad sat down beside him and said, Buddy, Let's just take it bird by bird. One, one bird at a time. Uh, I, I feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. But I, I want you to know that people like Laura Hamby, people like Hannah Scoggin, now at Grace and Peace, men and women in our church, like they're wanting to help all of us and, and they are helping us to say, all right, look, we, you, don't, don't start by adopting eight children from the Ukraine next week. But what if you said, you know what, I, I'm going to take food to this family that's fostering a child, and I'm going to pray for that child on a regular basis just so I can start. Like, let me start. 
when the scriptures point us to the orphan and the widow, it's not to overwhelm us, it's not to shame us, it's not to put us in our place. It's to say, look, how have you been dealt with? This river of mercy that has washed over you, extend it to those who need it. Participate in the grace of God. Not to prop yourself up through religion, but to show who God is. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us be religious in this way. Not through ritual and not through pride. Not through looking down on anybody. Not through exclusion. But in believing that the good news is that God burst in and had mercy on me. He offers His mercy to the least, that we may extend that mercy to others. Lord, soften our hearts toward widows in Greenville. Soften our hearts toward shut-ins. Soften our hearts about those in the foster care system, and the homeless, and the disenfranchised. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.